Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. My name is Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called A Child in a Foul Stable, Where the Beasts Feed in Foam. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December 12, 2010, the third Sunday in Advent. A few years ago during Advent, my wife noticed one of our co-workers in the church nursery gently crying as she washed her hands at the sink. When she inquired, Susan explained, You have no idea how painful the holidays are for me, she said. My husband divorced me and later died. My son was killed by a drunk driver, and my daughter died of cancer. A few weeks before she died, my son-in-law, an attorney, stole all the property that my daughter had intended for me to inherit. In fact, as she lay dying, she took great comfort thinking that I would inherit her condo. I am utterly alone in the world. A week before that, my wife had spoken to Ella, an attractive single woman in her 40s, an interior designer, who cried while she described her life. I divorced after five years of marriage. I take Prozac. I'm in weekly therapy, and I hate my job. My boss, with a massive ego, is so hard to work with. Sooner or later, writes Craig Barnes in his book, Searching for Home, Spirituality for Restless Souls, Trouble visits every address and comes for a visit. No one gets a free pass. Mental health experts warn us that this can be especially the case during the holidays with its superficial gaiety and heightened expectations. During these difficult times that we all experience, it's all too easy, in the words of Dante's Divine Comedy, to have our vision, quote, clouded by the mists of hell, end quote. <clears throat> I've tried to read the Bible regularly and carefully for 35 years, but I must say that I was jolted when I read the scriptures for this week. In a uniform way, they all reveal the essential character of God. All five passages emphasize the people toward whom God is biased. These scriptures describe at least 18 sorts of people in pain who might be forgotten by the world, but who nevertheless are remembered by God. The blind, the lame, the diseased, the deaf, the dead, the poor, the dumb, the oppressed, the hungry, prisoners, the bowed down, foreigners, orphans, widows, the humble, and then my three favorites, those with feeble hands, weak knees, and fearful hearts. These scriptures remind us that the Christmas story is essentially one of a God of tenderness and love who befriends us in the midst of whatever lostness we find ourselves. On that first Christmas night, Jesus was born in a barn not in a palace. The central characters in that drama were all homeless, 
Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, and the wise men. No wonder so many people miss the miracle. And yet, as Craig Barnes notes, Christians believe that when God entered our world of darkness and death, everything between heaven and the chaotic earth was changed forever. The sacred baby Jesus entered into our secular world, the eternal into the temporal, the heavenly into the mundane. The British writer G.K. Chesterton captures this divine descent in his poem, The House at Christmas, and even suggests that God himself was homeless. Listen to Chesterton's poem, The House of Christmas. There fared a mother driven forth out of an inn to roam in the place where she was homeless. All men are at home. The crazy stable close at hand with shaking timber and shifting sand grew a stronger thing to abide and stand than the square stones of Rome. For men are homesick in their homes and strangers under the sun and they lay on their heads in a foreign land whenever the day is done. Here we have battle and blazing eyes, and chance and honor and high surprise. But our homes are under miraculous skies, where the Yule tale was begun. A child in a foul stable, where the beasts feed and foam. Only where he was homeless are you and I at home. We have hands that fashion and heads that know, but our hearts we lost how long ago, in a place no chart nor ship can show under the sky's dome. This world is wild as an old wives' tale, and strange the plain things are. The earth is enough and the air is enough for our wonder and our war. But our rest is as far as the free drake swings, and our peace is put in impossible things, where clashed and thundered unthinkable wings round an incredible star. To an open house in the evening, home shall men come, to an older place than Eden, in a taller town than Rome. To the end of the way of the wandering star, to the things that cannot be and are, to the place where God was homeless and all men are at home. A foul stable with filthy animals, a pregnant and homeless teenager, and what Chesterton calls our wild world. It's in God's own homelessness, says Chesterton, that we discover our own sense of home. But wait, in the gospel this week, John the Baptist wonders whether Jesus is truly the coming deliverer. Jesus tells John to behold the healings of the blind, the lame, the deaf, and the dumb. And yet we know what happened to John. In fact, he was a man without a miracle who languished in prison before Herod beheaded him. So what exactly do the scriptures promise us? Thankfully, they don't promise us pious platitudes or glib cliches. God is not a Santa Claus. 
The Apostle Paul contrasts our present sufferings with future glory. In the epistle for this week, James urges patience in suffering at least five times. Hebrews honors all those saints who died without receiving what was promised. And the baby born in the barn will die a criminal death. I like how Frederick Buechner summarizes it. Our experiences of a real but limited deliverance today orient us to a confident expectation of a future redemption in the future, a full redemption in the future. Christians, write Buechner, are, quote, people who have been delivered just enough to know that there's more where that came from and whose experience of that little deliverance that has already happened inside themselves, and whose faith in the deliverance still to happen, is what sees them through the night. A child in a foul stable, where the beasts feed in foam. For books this week, I review Tracy Kidder, the title, Strength in What Remains, New York Random House, 2009, 284 pages. In the, in the autumn of 1995, when Deo Gratis of Burundi entered Columbia University as a freshman, a classmate asked him if his father was an African king. It was an innocent question in a reasonable guess. Deo didn't tell him that one year earlier he had fled the Hutu-Tutsi genocide in his home country of Burundi, which engulfed Rwanda six months later, then landed in New York City with only $200 and no knowledge of English, slept in an abandoned tenement buildings, crack houses, and in Central Park as a homeless person. He was 24 years old. Deo's tale is one of improbable survival and inspirational resilience. Tracy Kidder has won numerous awards for his brilliant storytelling, including a Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. Like his other book, Mountain Beyond Mountains, about Paul Farmer, this book, Strength in What Remains, has enjoyed a long ride on many bestseller lists. In the first half of the book, Kidder's chapters alternate between Deo's new life in New York and his former life in Burundi. In addition to his own resourcefulness, a half a dozen ordinary people assisted Deo at critical junctures, a Senegalese baggage handler at JFK, the former Benedictine nun Sharon McKenna, an attorney who helped with immigration papers, a nameless Hutu mother on the chaotic Rwandan border who most assuredly saved the Tutsi Deo from becoming one of the 300,000 people who perished, and especially his adoptive parents, Charlie and Nancy Wolf. By the end of the story, Deo has connected with Paul Farmers and Partners in Health and built a health clinic in Kidutu, Burundi, a Hutu village no less. But Kidder's book is far more than a feel-good story. It's a profoundly disturbing exploration of the Hutu-Tutsi genocide and of the torment of memory. In Deo's case, what he calls the ungovernable quality 
of his traumatic memories of carnage and survival. In Burundi, the word gusimbura means to revive painful memories. And it's an act which is considered worse than inconsiderate. It means to out someone's painful recollections. Is it possible to forget too much? To remember too much? Kidder's conclusion is worth quoting. He writes, A lot of Western thought and psychological advice assume that it's healthy to flush out and dissect one's memories. And maybe this is true. And yet, for all that, I began to have a simultaneous and opposite feeling that there was such a thing as too much remembering, that too much of it could suffocate a person, and indeed a whole culture. But our tour sites with Deo back in Burundi and Rwanda began to seem relentless. Observing Deo's endlessly renewed sorrow, I found myself thinking that there was something to be said for a culture with a word like gusimbura. In addition to telling Deo's story, Kidder provides brief histories of the political and cultural contexts of Burundi and Rwanda. The title for the book comes from a poem by Wordsworth. At the end of the edition of the book that I read, there are 18 questions for discussion. The title of the book, Strength in What Remains, by Tracy Kidder. For film this week, I review a movie called Inside North Korea from the year 2006. I got this film on Netflix. With the appointment of Kim Jong-un to succeed his father, the dear leader Kim Jong-il, to lead North Korea, and the continuing ambitions of the hermit kingdom to obtain nuclear weapons, This one-hour National Geographic documentary provides a good general introduction to the most isolated country in the world. Lisa Ling of National Geographic went undercover as a medical correspondent by joining a cataract surgery team to Pyongyang. In addition to her personal experiences there, the film also incorporates general background history, archival film footage, in interviews with Korea experts and several defectors. But it's the images that are so stunningly iconic. The major highway from the airport devoid of cars that no one can afford. Beer bottles at the hospital used for IVs. Satellite images of labor camps. And at the very end of the film, Patients whose sight was restored by the cataract surgeon, falling on their knees and raising their hands to one of the ubiquitous photos of the great leader. All praise to you, blessed leader. I will work harder in the salt mines. For an excellent book on the same subject of North Korea, see Barbara Demick, Nothing to Envy, Ordinary Lives in North Korea. 2010. The title of the National Geographic film, Inside North Korea.
And finally, for the third Sunday in Advent, we've posted a poem by John Donne. John Donne lived from 1572 to 1631. The title of his poem, Annunciation. Salvation to all that will is nigh, that all which always is, all everywhere, which cannot sin, and yet all sins must bear, which cannot die, yet cannot choose but die, lo, faithful virgin yields himself to lie in prison in thy womb, and though he there can take no sin, nor thou give, yet he will wear, take from thence flesh, which death's force may try. Ere by the fears time was created, thou wast in his mind, who is thy son and brother, whom thou conceivest conceived. Yea, thou art now thy maker's maker, and thy father's mother. Thou hast light in dark, and shuttest in little room, immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. John Donne, Annunciation. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, December 12, 2010, the third Sunday in Advent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.